Hi, I'm Colleen, your host for the Good News Podcast. And I'm Neil, the other host. The Good News Podcast is your source for good news, fun stories, auditory delight, and sonic joy. We're bringing you all of this goodness from beautiful downtown Chicago. If you're listening to this episode on the day it airs, then happy Juneteenth to you. Today is a holiday to celebrate African Americans' ancestors' emancipation from slavery. I wanted to make sure to highlight this celebration for today's episode, but I also think it would be great to highlight a voice that isn't mine. So for today's episode, we're mixing it up a little. From PRX and the awesome show Living on Earth, a weekly environmental news show, comes a story they did a few years ago discussing Juneteenth and the history behind some of our favorite foods. Enjoy! Since 1865, many African-American communities have marked and celebrated their emancipation on June 19th. Juneteenth, as it's known, is a day for picnics and cookouts in honor of the end of American slavery. But often overlooked at those gatherings is the role that Africans and the slave ships played in bringing some of those picnic foods to American tables. Today, we revisit how Living on Earth's Ike Shreeskandaraja explored the way culture and agriculture overlapped in that dark chapter of American history. For a thousand years before the Atlantic slave trade started, the origin of humanity was also its cornucopia. Many of the world's staple foods first sprouted from African soil. They're on your picnic table, from the sesame seeds on your bun to the Worcestershire sauce on your hamburger to your slice of watermelon. And if you reach into the cooler... The cola in Coca-Cola is an African plant as well, the cola nut. Judith Carney is the author of In the Shadow of Slavery, Africa's Botanical Legacy in the Atlantic World. Her book traces the paths of food that traveled with slaves, including an ingredient in the world's most ubiquitous fizzy drink. Cola came on slave ships. They used the cola nut in the casks of water that were carried on the ships to refresh water that was going bad during the prolonged voyage. So they were drinking Coke 400 years ago on slave ships? No, no. But it, <laughs> you, you need the coca part of it, too, and the sugar, I think. Uh, the only thing, I would say it's slightly more bitter than eating a potato raw. <laughs> Another of our favorite drinks, coffee, also comes out of Africa. And millet, black-eyed peas, Judith Carney tracks the migration of these foods through historical records. I went back and looked at the journals and the diaries. What did the ship captains, the slavers, how are they feeding people for six weeks to three months voyages? One such log was written by a 17th century slave trader moored off the coast of Western Africa. A ship that takes in 500 slaves must provide about 100,000 yams which is very difficult because it is hard to stow them. By reason, they take up so much room, and yet no less ought to be provided, the slaves being of such constitution that no other food will keep them, so they sicken and die apace. The slavers' human cargo was valuable, so captains bought food that captured Africans could eat, and they bought enough of it. Sometimes the ships would even land in the New World with surplus. And that, I argue, it, the unwitting conveyance of bringing African foods to the Americas was the slave ship. Once in the Americas, the slaves were scattered to work on plantation cash crops. 
but they were also expected to feed themselves. We think of plantations as places that produced export crops, but we don't think about them as also places where human beings had to also know how to farm for their own nourishment. A Danish traveler, Johan Karsten, wrote a diary describing his observations of the Americas during the early 18th century. These plantation slaves received nothing from their master in the way of food or clothing, except only the small plot of land at the outermost extremity of his plantation land that he assigns to each slave. The staples from Western Africa flourished in the South, and from those meager plots came a rich food tradition. It was good enough for slaves. It was even good enough for a founding father. Culinary historian Michael Twitty says that Thomas Jefferson actually bought food from his slaves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The day-to-day needs of his own kitchen table, much of that was supplied by the enslaved population of Monticello. There are extensive records of purchases for the main house from the enslaved communities. He would buy cabbage, he'd buy watermelon, he'd buy sprouts. President Jefferson wasn't alone. Before the new immigrants come in at the turn of the 20th century, we are the ethnic restaurateurs of America. And Twitty says that African Americans didn't just add ingredients to America's melting pot. They spiced it up. Oh, yes. Red pepper was the most important, ubiquitous spice. So important that in 1780, close to 100 slaves newly imported from West Africa protested until plantation owner Josiah Collins supplied the spice. And within a year of their arrival, he has to order a thousand pepper pods to season their food because they will not eat bland food. They expressed to him that we want the pepper pods. Hot sauce has been on most southern tables since. African Americans' cuisine still has its roots in those peripheral plots. But African-Americans' connection to the land has changed. We were an agrarian people for millennia, even through the period of slavery. We went from being 90% agrarian to 90% urban in less than 100 years. Think about that. Freedom wasn't free. Emancipation cost slaves their link to the land. African-Americans couldn't own or lease land. Their only option was punitive sharecropping. All that oppression hurt us in the long run because it divorced us from the land, it divorced us from nature. And through food, we can reconnect with that and begin to repair those links. That's part of Michael Twitty's mission. He works to bridge that gap. He's put together the African American Heritage Seed Collection. It offers heirloom seeds to today's gardeners. To see an okra plant that you know was growing in the gardens of the people who worked in Mount Vernon and Monticello. To see a kind of rice grown in the rice plantations of 17th century South Carolina, it gives you the sense of such connection. Because I always tell people, you know, my own little corny saying, but growing history is knowing history. And knowing history can turn your bowl of gumbo into a portal back through time. I'm Ike Sris Kandaraja. Happy Juneteenth. Thanks for listening. Do you have good news? Incredible. Or maybe you want to tell us a joke or idea? Excellent. Email us at hello at thegoodnewspodcast.fm. Or leave us a voicemail at 773-217-0156. You can also tweet us at thegoodnewspod. And follow us on Instagram, too. And if you love The Good News Podcast, think about supporting us on our Patreon page. Most of our music is by Poddington Bear. Poddington Bear.